Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello again, Tom. Hello again, Russ. Still have the parabola on your board. I, you know, yep. got to do something about that eventually, but that's okay. <laughs> it's a rocket going up and a rocket, it's a rocket down. going up, coming down. <laughs> and today we are joined by Paul Grubbs. Now, Paul, you are at New York University. Is that correct? Is that your primary thing? Uh, no, I, I started a professorship at the University of Michigan last okay, fall. University of Michigan. Okay. Yeah. So this is, yeah, this is from the New York University Department of Computer Science, which is why, I guess. But, okay, so you're at University of Michigan. So Dave Myers is still out there, isn't he? Or is he no longer involved? Or was is that the wrong college? Uh, I don't know him. Okay. I know he was, I know he was out, I think he was in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and he was involved in a university out there. I just started teaching at University of Colorado on the oh. side as an, as an adjunct, you know, adjunct lecturer type thing. I was trying to get and teach at University of Tennessee, but that has been a longer row to hoe than I thought it would be. So mm-hmm. University of Colorado had a spot open for an adjunct lectureship, and I was like, yeah, fine. I'll go. I'll go do that. That'll be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm teaching network design, so it's right up my alley, man. Like, mm-hmm. how can you go wrong? <laughs> yeah. Sounds cool. Yeah. i take your class if I had the time. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm not teaching a formal network design class. I'm teaching more of a capstone on a master's degree class, which is more like let's wander around and talk about lots of things in the area of network design. And let me get you familiar with voices you should be listening to and places you should be looking for stuff rather than just like, this is how to do a hierarchical network. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know? uh, you can learn that from a book. But learning that learning that Radio Perlman is a worthy voice to listen to is not something you're going to learn out of a book. It's something that's got to be passed on. So that kind of thing is kind of what I'm doing. Anyway, all right. So zero knowledge middle boxes is what we're talking about. And we're, we're riffing off of an article that you published in IACR. And just tell us a little bit about like what this is. What, well, let's start with the problem, right? What's the problem we're facing here in the networking world with middle boxes? that this becomes um, something that we need to motivate towards or something we need to do to think about zero box middle or zero knowledge middle boxes? Um, yeah, so the basic problem that zero knowledge middle boxes um, address is a tension between the ability to administer a network and the need to see the traffic in the network. So today, in certain settings when encryption is really common in a network um like like an example is encrypted dns um it's really comp it's really uh difficult to enforce dns-based security policies in a network so like an example of this would be content filtering like in uh, like a school's network you might want to prevent students from navigating to like adult websites or something so a logical place to do that is in the in the dns uh but if your dns traffic is encrypted it's really hard at the network layer to kind of enforce a kind of filtering policy in the network. This kind of tension is really, really common in networks. Um, and as encryption has become more common in networks, like in the last like 10 or 15 years, with like TLS becoming much, much more widespread and also encryption being used for things like DNS and also like encrypted client hello in TLS 1.3, this problem has kind of continued to 
kind of become more and more acute um, in and, networks. Yeah, and DOH. And, you know, we actually had a long discussion with Jeff Houston about this problem on a on two podcasts called Going Dark, because that's his terminology for it is going dark. And the worry about we will not be able to measure things from an enterprise edge network perspective or a standard operator. And by the way, this is not just a problem in that environment. I should point out, I mean, people like Akamai and CDNs of all times, and even uh, IXPs like Equinix are, you know, this is, this is a thing. This is a potential problem because uh, you count on being able to see what's going on in a flow to understand, like, what's going on? What should I do with this tra- with this traffic? And so as this stuff gets hidden, it gets harder for us to do things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think a, a lot of people are facing this, this issue in networks. Yeah, yeah. So, so the idea here is a zero-knowledge middle box. Uh, so you call them ZKMBs. I don't think we'll use that because people listening might go, <laughs> My, they're, they're little, you know, their eyes may close over if we say that. Mm-hmm. So, and you talk about encrypted DNS a bit and stuff like that. So explain to me, like, what are the challenges? Like, wh- what are the problems that you see here that you need to get around? Or what are the things that are going on? here that, that you're trying to work around a little bit. Do you mean um, like what were the challenges in, in building um, zero knowledge middle boxes or like what? Well, like, like you say here, there, there are um, the three, the preventing the client from circumventing policy by encrypting one and sending encrypting and sending one non-compliant plain text while like that's a real problem, right? Like mm-hmm. these are, or formalism, um, these types of things. So are there any, are there anything, is there anything in there that's a particular interest for folks who may not understand these kinds of challenges or, or what's going on in that area? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it would be helpful for the listener if I like explain the zero knowledge middle box idea. Yeah, sure. Um, that would be yeah. good. Yeah. Let's yeah, do yeah. That. So the, so the idea of a zero knowledge middle box is we have a, network middle box that sits between a client and a server uh, and the network middle box wants to enforce some uh, policy on the traffic that the client is going to send um so in a zero knowledge middle box the, the the middle box sends a description of this policy to the client and then the client and the server communicate using like encrypted traffic as they would otherwise but in addition to sending encrypted packets the client sends uh, like a cryptographic like value uh, called a zero knowledge proof uh, to the middle box that convinces the middle box that whatever the traffic underneath the encryption is even though the middle box can't see the traffic uh, it complies with the policy that the middle box like requested the client comply with. Um, so in the case of like DNS filtering, the um, policy that the middlebox sends is like maybe a list of block domains. And then when the client does a encrypted DNS query, it sends the middlebox a proof that the underlying you know request, the DNS request, is for a domain that's not on the block list. Um, wow. So so the, like the challenges, there are a couple of challenges in doing this. Um, the maybe the main one is constructing this zero knowledge proof and in particular being able to 
assert things about encrypted traffic, like the underlying plaintext of encrypted traffic. Um, so in our paper, we have a really strong focus on legacy um, secure channel protocols of TLS 1.3. And so a challenge in building um, zero-knowledge proofs for TLS 1.3 is that TLS 1.3 wasn't really designed to have things proved about it in zero-knowledge. So it doesn't really have kind of friendly features that we would uh, in other applications, like maybe like in blockchains, people would use to build efficiency or knowledge proof. So we had to be really, really clever in the way that we designed the statement that we're approving for TLS 1.3. So, so there's an actual protocol where the client sends a packet or wants to send a packet and the middle box can say, okay, say it's a DNS query, because that's a perfect example of it. Or even if it's a connection to some some particular TLS based, you know, like HTTPS based website or something. And the client can say, I'm, I'm going to send this and he's going to send a packet or a protocol to in this pro in this way of doing this to the middle box and say, I'm going to send this. Is this within policy or is it the other way around? The middle box says, this is my list of policies. Please promise you won't do these things. Which Which direction is the work um, being done? the latter. So, so the middle box communicates to the client what the policies are, and then the client proves that its traffic is compliant with the policy to the middle box. So when the client sends its encrypted traffic to the server, it also tells the middle box, hey, you know, this encrypted ciphertext that you can see going on the wire to the server, I'm going to convince you that this plain text is compliant with the policy that you told me to comply with. Okay. All right. Okay, so that's the basic idea. Now talk to us about how does that actually look in practice? What does that, how do you do this? Because that sounds like a very, very difficult problem to solve. Yeah, so the way that we approached building the um, zero-knowledge proofs for this application was to split the problem into like multiple sub-problems. So we have zero-knowledge proofs for the TLS 1.3 part, where we just take an encrypted packet and then in the zero knowledge proof machinery, uh, so in a privacy preserving way, we sort of decrypt it. And then we have zero knowledge proof machinery that can kind of extract values from the uh, decrypted packet, again, in a privacy preserving way. So when I say like in the zero knowledge proof, what I mean is like in some sort of kind of representation of a computation that's done in a privacy preserving way. So the kind of intermediate values of the computation are hidden from the middle box here. So then when, once the values are extracted from the uh, decrypted data, then finally we can just do, for example, in the DNS case, a block list proof um, to, to assert that, for example, the domain name is not on a list of um, block domains. Um, so the main challenges were, I mean, like you said, one one major challenge was preventing the client from sort of lying about what they're sending. Um, so this is why we need to kind of connect, if you will, what we're proving in zero knowledge to the kind of machinery of TLS 1.3. Because to prevent the client from lying, we actually need to know, in some sense, what's inside the TLS traffic that's being sent. And so like kind of doing that efficiently and securely was a, a major challenge of the paper. Okay. So kind of maybe describe a little bit. So again, this is a protocol, right? So a stack would have, a, a host would have to support this, right? It would mm -hmm. have to be a modification to the host stack. And then that protocol is, is its own protocol? Is it running on top of Quick? Is it running on top? What, how can you describe a little bit to us the mechanics of how you're actually transporting these proofs? 
um, um, what yeah, that looks yeah. like. So in our current implementation, the proofs are transported like in parallel to the actual um, data packets. So we have a, like a control channel that's open between the client and the middle box that sends proofs that pertain to packets that are sent like in like a TLS connection or something to the server. Um, so the idea would be that the, the client um, would send the, the packet and the proof more or less at the same time. Um, and then the middle box would, before forwarding the packet to the server, the middle box would verify the proof to check that the packet is compliant with the policy. Okay. And now there are, in some applications, you can imagine that it's not necessary to send the proof at the same time as the packet. Like you might be able to send the packet and then maybe like a couple seconds later, the middle box can verify that what it just sent is compliant with the policy and then maybe take action against the client a couple seconds later. So in applications where you don't really need real-time detection, it might make sense to send send and verify the proofs like sort of like at some delay uh, to the actual traffic being forwarded. Okay. But yeah, yeah. In in the most basic example, like like you said, like the host would need to be modified to run a zero knowledge uh, proof generation algorithm. Um, and then it would also need to be able to accept descriptions of network policies in a, a representation that's sort of amenable to having like like having a zero knowledge proof generated about it. Um, so okay. like I guess you know we, you can imagine like when you join a network like during this during DHCP uh, the the network would actually give you a description of the policy in addition to like your like IP address or something like that. Um, and then your like your host machine would parse the policy and then get ready to prove uh, statements about the traffic. And then when you make an outbound encrypted connection, then this zero knowledge middle box protocol starts. And then the the proofs that you generate about as you send encrypted traffic, the zero knowledge middle box proofs are sort of generated and sent in parallel to the middle box. Oh, okay. So the the middle box is it's it's not that the that the client downloads its policies from the middle box. It gets it out of band some other way, DHCP options you mentioned. And then, then it generates its proof based on that. Right, right. Well, I guess in like, you know, because I'm an academic, I kind of like abstract and simplify things. So I think of the middle box as also being the one that sort of specifies the DHCP policies. But certainly like they can be like the middle box. The middle box here is just sort of represents like a logical control point. So right. you can distribute, like you said, like distribute the policies out of band, like on network join, and then the middle box just also has a copy of whatever policy is specified, and then they can do that proof verification. Okay. And okay. so so that would actually be important, right? That the middle box somehow gets its policy distributed, because this is not something that you would do dynamically. That's what I'm getting, is that this is not like, okay, I'm going to send this packet, therefore I need to dynamically um, you know, do this thing where I do proof based on what I just did. It's actually no, you've got to know the policy and set your proof up before you, before you send, send packets, right? Yeah, before you send the packets. Yeah, that's the simplest way of imagining deployment. However, I think it's possible to do it dynamically, like you said. Like if the middle box wants to like ask the client to prove something about a packet that it's sending like the middle box could give like deliver a policy to the client and then to tell the client like hey this packet you just sent i know like you know i hadn't asked you to do this before but now i'm asking you to prove that it complies with xyz policy and then the client could like generate a proof afterwards after it sends the packet if that makes sense 
Okay, so so it could be reactive rather than proactive. And the reason I think yeah. that's that's important is because first of all, of course, policies change. And so you can't just pick it up when you first come out on the network, right? You've got to be able to dynamically understand how the policy is changing over time because the policy could change. And second mm-hmm. of all, those policy lists are going to be big. They're going to be huge. Like they're going to be thousands of domains, thousands of IP addresses. And for the host to be able to keep all of that and say, oh, I've got to do a table lookup and find, oh, yeah, that's a domain I'm supposed to prove doing things on. That could be very difficult or kinds of queries or something could be quite difficult for the host. Mm-hmm. So I would think that the, the reactive um, now and of course you said, so basically what you're saying is you send the packet and then you ask for it so that what you can do is you can try not to slow down the operation of the host even though it's reactive, right? This is always the complaint of reactive control planes of any kind, is that I have to wait until you tell me where the route is so I can send the packet. But mm-hmm. what do I do with the packet while I'm waiting for you to tell me where the, where the route is? I throw it away? Do I queue it? What's going on with the application? All this other stuff. This kind of avoids all that at the subtle risk that somebody could theoretically exfiltrate data, some small amount of data, before the policy is invoked. Yeah, exactly. So in applications where you absolutely cannot allow a single bit of unverified plain text to leave the network, like you said, it's like this sort of like asynchronous verification isn't really suitable because you can't in, in the lag between forwarding the packet and verifying the policy, some data will leave the leave the middle box's control and the network's control. Um, but in applications, especially like a DNS, where your policy, what you care about is uh, like you, you're you're asserting a policy on a query that has to get a response for it to be useful. So even in the time that it takes the response to come back from the DNS server, you can imagine the client could generate and send and the middle box could verify the proof. So then you could get sort of a similar security guarantee with no kind of in critical path latency, if that makes sense. Yes, right, exactly. And and that's actually what would kind of concern me about deploying something like this. So another another question is like, what do these policies look like? I mean, how are you expressing these policies? You have this idea of this policy and validation. It must be kind of difficult to say, okay, you can query for banana.example, but you cannot query for, I don't know, yellow.banana.example or something like that. Like there's got to be pretty specific ways of putting in like domain subdomain or is it, or is it not quite that granular? I mean, how does that piece of it work? Um, so for DNS filtering, what we, what we do is we have basically a domain block list um, that has a set of domains that are, you're not allowed to resolve. And then in the sort of policy validation step, um, we express like, kind of a prefix lookup, if that makes sense. Like okay. we don't we don't exactly do it this way, but what you can imagine what we do is is akin to doing a prefix search in that list. So if the domain you're querying, um, if if what you're querying, like if any prefix of that domain is in that list, then you're not allowed to query it. Then the policy won't won't validate. Okay. So how um, go ahead. No, go ahead. So I, um, it's just kind of uh, trivia, I guess. But I, how is the policy actually expressed? Do you use uh, a, a, an available markup language? Is it uh, something plain text? Is it like ASN one or 
how, how do you uh, how do you physically express the policy? No, that's a great question. So right now we don't have really a good way of expressing the policies. The, the policy expression itself really is just sort of implicit in the description of the like zero knowledge proof statement. Um, so really right now it's actually very unwieldy to express a zero knowledge middle box policy um, and to write one, like, unfortunately, like, like right now you, you need like advanced training and like cryptography and zero knowledge proofs to, to, you know, to write it like a policy. So eventually though, what I, what I'd like to do is to be able to ingest a policy that comes from like existing network infrastructure, like, like a snort IDS or some kind of intrusion detection or like an analytic system, and then just kind of compile it down to a representation of a zero knowledge proof statement. So using like a, like a, markup language that sort of like network administrators are already familiar with and just being able to compile that down to a zero knowledge proof would be really, really cool. But that capability is kind of not like, it's not something we actually have implemented right now. Well, and it's going to be hard to do because the format has to be such that the compile actually, I mean, it, it could be order dependent, right? Some of this stuff is not atomic. It's like, it's variable, right? Is that correct? I would think so. Uh, can you explain what you mean? So it may be that there are certain policies that you run into that are order dependent. Is that correct? Or can you think when, of... When you say order dependent, what do you mean? You need to do this before you do that. Or you can only do this if you've done that. Like a like a DNS uh, request is prerequisite to sending an HTTP GET, that right, sort of thing, or something right? like that. Is there is there nothing like? I guess there's nothing like that in this yet because that would be even another level of complexity. I see. Okay, so you're saying policies that that require kind of coordinating across flows or something like that. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. That's some not something that we have implemented. Um, it is. Something I've thought about, and I believe it's possible, but like you said, like it's it's an additional layer of complexity that I think would be would be like a, like non-trivial to implement. Yeah, um, it would be hard to do. That's my impression yeah. as well. Yeah. So that's why I was curious, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, if you're doing anything in that realm, which doesn't sound like right now, which is cool. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. just trying to understand. So I, how do you, I mean, I guess just... I don't know really how to how to like at what other things have so you've tried this or have you not you've not you've implemented it right this has mm -hmm. been implemented yeah and you have some numbers in here like you know it takes two to what is it two to five milliseconds to verify uh, or fourteen seconds you know something like a TLS requires a lot less time to verify than it does to generate on a good CPU right. You've done mm -hmm. that kind of testing. So what, what I mean, performance wise, do you think that's, it's all very doable? Are you in the realm of like, yeah, we can really do this? Or do you think there's still a ton of work that needs to be done in getting? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the numbers from our initial implementation, I think they are really promising, but I think most people who work on very practical things would probably laugh me out of the room if I tried to claim that it was practical. <laughs> so like in, in our paper, we our our best implementation to open a TLS 1.3 connection adds about 15 seconds of additional latency to the connection, just, just for the session setup. And now, 
you can argue like, well, there's maybe some settings like if you can do this just once when you start your browser up, then maybe like the user won't really notice if they have to wait this long. But still, like for almost all use cases, 15 seconds is just is just much, much too too long to do this. Now we these costs are like it are, are very, very feasible to reduce though. And in fact, in some ongoing work, we've already seen something like a like a seven to 10 X speed up in the, in the session opening. So now we can do a session opening proof in something like two, 1.5 or two seconds instead of 15 seconds. So we're, we're seeing um, with more kind of advanced zero knowledge techniques, we're seeing really, really promising performance gains, but I think there is still some, some work to do in terms of optimizing uh, the, the zero knowledge proof part of this for before it can really be used in, in a widespread way. I think the what the implementation we have right now is already basically practical in some uh, use cases because this with these more efficient zero knowledge proofs plus this idea of asynchronous verification you could sort of take the the cost of verifying and sort of storing the proof out of the critical path of the network so that the user visible kind of latency increase of this process is really um, already like minimized by doing this asynchronous verification. So, um, and with the proof, the kind of computational requirements of proof generation being reduced, then, you know, some people who have the right kinds of computers, I think could feasibly run this today or very soon. Um, Now making this sort of, you know, if we're going to be talking about like feature phones or low-end Android devices running these kinds of proofs, I think that's like a probably a longer, like at least like a three to five year um, project, just getting proof generation to be fast enough on those devices. And I mean, is this something you would want to perhaps put a specialized chipset in the box if it became widely useful? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think like maybe the one of the best ways of thinking about scaling this practically is customized hardware. Um, And what's interesting about the idea of customized hardware is that a lot of the expensive operations that you have to do for zero knowledge proof generation and verification are in common with the kinds of algebraic operations that you have to do when you terminate a TLS connection. So in theory, at least special purpose ASICs for doing things like TLS termination could be used or like maybe repurposed um, in these kind of zero knowledge middle box of verification settings to accelerate verification. So you wouldn't potentially you wouldn't even need to, you know, design a whole new ASIC. You could reuse some part of an ASIC or an FPGA that exists in like deployed um, hardware. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah, yeah great. So that that's actually helpful too, um, because I think this would really well I could see the purpose for this on standard host. I could really see the purpose for this in data center for like VMs, right? Because I have a VM sitting there and somebody breaks into it because they left open a password or some nonsense, but then they start exfiltrating data and you could have a policy that says something like, okay, the third time they ask for a record, you've got to validate that the other end is supposed to be getting this data or something like that. Like you could do mm-hmm. it on a, a slowdown basis or something like that, where you can slow down an attacker. Um, uh, what was that? Cuckoo's egg where he did that. He hung, um, he hung uh, keys over the line 
so that the attacker couldn't download stuff as quickly kind of a thing. And so the, there are potential places there where it might not be as important on a little machine as it is on a big machine. And those would seem to be obvious, immediate, like, we can go do this right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So like some like preventing exfiltration in a data center setting is what you're saying. Yes, is what I'm saying. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you're okay. a DNS server, right? You're in a root zone, you're a root server, and you keep getting hits and they are, okay, they've asked me for 10 things that I've responded in X domain in the last five minutes. That's, you know, that's outside of my policy. And you don't necessarily want to code that into the DNS software. You really want a middle box that can do that. And you also don't necessarily want to turn off DNSSEC to be able to do it, right? Because it's going to be encrypted or, or DOH, um, even if it's a recursive in DOH. You don't want to turn these things off to make this happen. So maybe it makes sense in those situations to be able to say, yeah, you know, this is my policy. It's enforced in a middle box. It's outside of my DNS server. It's not something I've got to deal with over there. It's something a middle box is dealing with. But the policy sits elsewhere, but I can validate, I can guarantee that that policy takes effect is kind of what I'm thinking. I have a bit of a philosophical question. So you mentioned early on that um, there would be a privacy, privacy respecting uh, decryption, basically. So my philosophical question is, if, if you have to prove to the middle box that what you're doing is legit, why, and, and I know this is a phil- phil- philosophical question, not a technological one, why wouldn't you just shim this software in between the application and the network stack and do that, um, f- figure that information out and do the proof before it was ever submitted to a layer that encrypts it? Why wouldn't you just do it in the open? It's on the machine that the user's on. What, why stick it into encryption, sort of back it out a little bit, but not all the way, so, so, however that is that you do. Uh, and then, like, so what's what's the reasoning there? What's the What's the train of thought? Yeah, so... The the basic reason why this this is arguably useful is because it eliminates trust in client code. The approach you're describing works as long as you trust what code the client is executing. But if you're the network and you don't necessarily trust your client host like because they've been compromised by malware or something, you really want to be able to verify what verify what the clients are doing like in the network. So kind of you have that control point and you can verify things that are happening even without having to trust what the client is doing. Um, But if the software is in the client, could the client still lie? um, Um, So that's the interesting thing about this zero-knowledge proof machinery is that the client, no matter what it does, can't lie about what it's sending. The, the, crypto, the cryptographic security guarantees prevent the client from lying in the same way that they could if it was just plain code running on the client. Okay. That's really interesting because that is an issue that you would run into, right? If somebody owns my machine, if they've rooted my machine, then they could, in theory, tell the software in the machine to do whatever they want it to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now, you know, it's kind of like, okay, the machine is telling me I'm not lying, but that's like putting an evil bit in the packet. Yeah, that wasn't very useful because the machine's <laughs> lying about telling me it's not lying. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but you've already figured that in to the way that you're doing things. 
because you say the machine can't lie. Yeah, exactly. that's what's so interesting about zero knowledge proofs as a kind of like ingredient for building secure systems is like they have these two complementary security properties where they the person generating the proof has to be honest, but the person verifying the proof doesn't learn any more information than they need to. And so the the kind of magic of this is like because the zero knowledge proof has these two complementary properties and we can get both the verifiability by the network, but also the privacy to kind of hide from the network what the client is doing. Yeah. I mean, you, you could argue that if someone owns the machine, they own the thing generating these proofs. So why try to hide it from the software at all? Like that that's the part I'm still having a little bit of a hard time with. Like if they own the machine and they compromised it and they compromised the machinery that is, that is building the proof, I guess they would have to have knowledge in advance of what the middle box is expecting as, as the proof, right. They would have to read the policy and say, here's what I should be uh, lying about when I, when I send my, when I send my proof, right. What, I, 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 help me understand that. Why does, how does this keep a compromised machine honest? Because it forces the compromised machine to basically prove the integrity of whatever computation it's performing to the middle box. So the co- the code that it uses to compute like the network traffic um, on its own machine um, is not necessarily the code the 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 computation that the client is asserting that it's done um, can't be changed by the client because the middle box won't verify the proof unless the client performs that computation exactly as it was instructed. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I guess we got to read the paper to understand that fully because that does sound. Um, yeah, it's 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 very counterintuitive, and like this is one of the kind of mind-bending things about zero knowledge proofs um, that they 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 are sort of in some sense independent of whatever like code the the prover is trying to run. So like if the prover lies to you, if the if the prover tries to lie to you, rather it doesn't really matter how the prover tries to construct that lie. The security guarantees of the zero knowledge proof say that the prover must fail unless it tells the truth about what it's proving to you. Okay. So sort of an an analogy would be like, if you think about a digital signature, what that guarantees is that someone who doesn't know the private key, no matter how they try to generate a signature that verifies, like they can't, they can't generate a verifying signature without that private key. Um, So in 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 an analogous way, you can think of a zero knowledge proof as almost being like a signature of, of performing some computation correctly. Okay. Without having performed that computation correctly, then you can't generate a proof that verifies. Okay. So that's, that's actually really cool. And I, I do think that I'm going to have to read the paper more closely to understand exactly how that must work because I don't understand the math off the top of my head of how that would right. work. Um, right. it, it, it sounds vaguely similar to a public private key pair, perhaps where you are, where the other end doesn't really know the, the other parts of the key. They can do things, but if they do them using the wrong, key because they don't know what they're doing, then things blow up no matter what key they try to use. They can't really, they can't fake the key basically that they're supposed to be using. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good analogy. Like in in a signature scheme, anyone who knows the public key can verify. Um, right. But unless you, unless you know the right private key, you can't generate a signature. Yeah. Right. right, exactly. And if, and if you have the private key, you might as well just be the sender because you have it all. Mm-hmm. Like That's yeah. right, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. So good. Yeah, that's really cool. 
Okay, so I I can't think of much else to ask. I guess, you know, the big thing is folks should go get read this thing, right? And um, yeah, yeah. I would I would be thrilled if people read my paper and sent me emails that ask ask questions about it. <laughs> I mean, as, well, as an academic, that's like uh, that always makes me really excited is when people people are actually reading my research and like thinking about it. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then from here, the other question I guess I have is, do you have any practical path? Like, do you have vendors who are sitting around saying, "Yeah, we really like this idea. Please help us work it out," or is it more? You're presenting this and, and people are looking at it and saying, yeah, but, or, I mean, are you getting any traction or do you have any path forward that you can think of? Yeah, a, a couple of companies have have come to me and sort of expressed interest in commercializing this. It's still um, early stages, but it seems like there is uh, some commercial interest. Um, and also, I'm, I, I've been talking to a lot of people who work in like, encrypted DNS, like policy groups and people who work in the DNS ecosystem. And the specific use case of DNS filtering and kind of DNS policy is one that I think is very compelling to a lot of people who think about these problems um, and are kind of, you know, flummoxed by these very challenging tensions um, as, as, as many people are. Um, yeah. so I think there, there is some, some interest and some traction from industry. What we, our, our team is working on now is really trying to improve the uh, performance of the kind of core protocols and also thinking of different, you know, use cases and applications where this might be, um, an interesting capability. Yeah. I, I wonder how this would intermix with something like ODOH, where you have a proxy in the middle or something like that and how this mm -hmm. might work partner up with proxies to help even prove that things are going correctly even more strongly than just mm -hmm. saying, yeah, I'm a proxy. And by the way, I'm going to do the right thing and you can trust me. Yeah, well, that's that's awesome. But how about you actually prove to me that you're doing the right thing? Mm -hmm. That seems like an interesting an interesting use area or an interesting use case that would be worth Yeah, absolutely. Like ODOH and also there's a mask working group like, um, um, gosh, I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but so people, I guess this, this sort of pat pattern of using proxies to improve client privacy by sort of encrypting things twice is one that I think is gaining more traction, like with Apple private relay and things like that. Yeah, so yeah, right. I think it's really interesting to imagine what you could do with these zero knowledge proofs um, in this like proxy connection setting. Yeah, it's really cool. Okay, so where could people find this work? I'm gonna put the URL in the show notes, but if people, and I suppose your email address is in there, right, Paul? So that people mm -hmm. can get in touch with you if they wanna ask questions. Yeah. And other than that, you have a blog, I assume, that since you work at University of Michigan, that University of Michigan would have a place where they publish current work or something like that, I, I'm guessing. Um, yeah, so I just sent my my website in the Zoom channel. Um, and my website has some links to some um, like articles and blogs about this that are kind of written for what like that are not super technical, that are written for like a broader like tech audience. Um, okay. And I think if people are interested, like, I wrote a blog post for um, Apnic that I think is a a pretty good, not kind of mostly non-technical introduction to the idea of a zero knowledge middle box. Okay, cool. That's great. Yeah. Okay. We'll try to find those and point people to them as well. So mm -hmm. do you, are you on Twitter, LinkedIn, any place where people um, can get in touch with you other than email? 
Yeah, I'm on Twitter. My my Twitter handle is PAG underscore crypto. Okay. And I made this Twitter before crypto was a common abbreviation for cryptocurrency, not cryptography. So <laughs> in, in oh, case there's a question, no. you should read the abbreviation crypto as meaning cryptography, not cryptocurrency. So. Oh, no, that's sad. <laughs> yeah, got trapped in cultural changes. That you weren't anticipating. <laughs> yep. If only, if only you could update Twitter handles, but you know, such is life. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe that'll eventually happen, but not right now. Mm. Um. So cool. All right. And Tom, where can people get in touch with you if they want to? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Just search for Tom Ammon. Just search for Tom Ammon. And we've just given up on the blog. Is that? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I think you should do a blog post on the parabola and other stuff since you were working on it there. Oh, yeah. There we that, go. that would be a good thing. All right. Great. Okay. Well, I'm Russ White. You can always find me here on The Hedge at rule11.tech on LinkedIn. I don't know, here and there, other places, uh, wherever you feel like trying to get in touch with me. Um, I don't answer PMs on Twitter hardly ever. And I don't know. I'm, I'm not... I'm not totally social media adverse, but I'm really cautious about social media. So you, you, I'm not always, generally email is the best um, for me to get in touch with me as well. So anyway, thanks, Paul, for coming on. It's a great conversation. Yeah, Very thanks interesting. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, great technology. And, you know, if there's other stuff that you're working on, I know you're working on some other things we've talked about pre-show. We could bring those up and bring them on the hedge because... You know, research stuff is what's coming in networking, and we need to, like, really pay attention to what y'all, the research folk, are working on more and uh, so that we have uh, a better sense of what's coming next in, in networking. So, all right. Yeah, thanks. I definitely will. Yeah, great. All right. And for all those who listen to this, thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge, and we will catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.